Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani. Paul, I went and saw The Flash and- uh, What'd you think? Honestly, man, like I, I went with a buddy of mine. This is my, my, my Marvel slash DC movie going buddy. And he's like a diehard DC fan. I think I know this person. I don't know him, but you've talked about him on the show before. Yeah, yeah, I've, ta- I've talked about him. And it's funny because he's moving, uh, unfortunately. And it was our last like outing. And it was really sweet because his wife came with us, and, who's a good friend of mine. And we took her the first time to the movie. And she's never seen any of these movies before. So she had a good time. But this is what I'll say. It wasn't bad. It wasn't a bad movie. A lot of great nostalgia that obviously, if you're a fan of Batman 89, like a lot of cool Easter eggs, a little messy. It was okay. We kind of walked out a little bit like, what did we just watch? And there were times where we were high-fiving each other. (laughs) We were high-fiving each other in the middle of the movie. And then um, at the end of it, we both looked at each other and we're like, well, that was a bit messy. Man, DC really likes to like, use CGI almost way too much. And you're just kind of like, you kind of miss the days of what Christopher Nolan did with his Batman trilogy where like it was barely any CGI. Oh, sure, yeah. But it was an entertaining movie. And and I think that like, obviously a lot of controversy with Ezra Miller and, and the stuff that he's going through and all the allegations and things that he's dealing with right now. But, you know, I, I think that from what my understanding of the box office report and it's still early because we're recording this before the full numbers come out, but it did 60 million over the course of three days and they were expecting 70 to 75 million. So it underperformed. And uh, yeah, I don't really know what to make of it, but- Underperformed, but not not, not a terrible. bomb. But not a bomb, not a bomb. Not a bomb, but on the heels of Across the Spider-Verse- Oh my God, incredible. You know, not really a home run either. We talked about this, so this is not part of the James Gunn creative no. tree. No. But they didn't scrap it either. So I guess the movie was it was done shooting and probably mostly done when Warner Discovery appointed James Gunn and Peter Safran, the co-heads of DCU. But they were like, hey, we're, we're going to release it. We're in favor of it. It's not really their movie, but they're supporting it. Like We keep saying it. Like, what is going to happen with James Gunn's DC? I am excited to see like a new type of style. I will say that the movie was funny. Like it had really good funny bits, but it still felt like the Justice League E type vibe to it. But I would say it was it's better than the other movies. So for me, you know, I am hardcore Marvel as far as in the comic wor- <laughs> universe, you know, having worked at Marvel, yeah. growing up more of a Marvel fan than DC. Although, you know, the DC animated series when I was a kid, like Batman was great. Of course. But of the DC film universe, it's really just the Christopher Nolan movies and the first Wonder Woman that I think were like awesome. Totally. And then everything else to me was kind of more or less like hit or miss, mediocre. Mediocre. And it sounds like this is kind of in line with that. So maybe consistent. Yeah, I'd put it as mediocre. Like for me, 
obviously love Marvel. Batman reigns supreme on top of everyone. Christopher Nolan's Batman, amazing. I loved Tim Burton's Batman. I really wish he took a third stab at it. So it was nice to see that like brought back in. And there was, like I said, lots of nostalgia, but we'll see where it goes from here. Well, good. You know, as we speak, Tribeca Film Festival is wrapping up. I guess it will have ended by the time this episode comes out. Jess, as everyone knows by now, is, you know, film and TV. Yep. Creative exec. She got invited to a couple events. We went to one, which was actually... The Walking Dead, Dead City premiere. Oh, cool. This is a spinoff. I guess AMC has a couple spinoffs of the Walking Dead franchise, which they're going to be releasing. And so The Walking Dead's like an ensemble cast, The Walking Dead, Dead City, and the other spinoffs are basically focusing on a subset of the cast telling like more specific, deeper stories about a few characters rather than diving in. And, and Dead City actually takes place like in Manhattan, once the zombies have infiltrated and the city is like, you know, post-apocalyptic and, you know, leaving the theater. So it was down in Tribeca. I got to say, I really liked it. I wasn't the biggest fan of the Walking Dead, not because I didn't like the show, only because I'm just not like the biggest zombie content person. I mean, I do like, I did like 28 Days Later and there's exceptions. Yeah, yeah. But just generally, it's not really my vibe. But I really liked it. I thought it was good. There was a Q&A with the cast. The cast was just like superstars. Everyone was very talented and gorgeous and all that. <laughs> and so it was fun to be there and be in the room and, and watch them. Like They showed the first two episodes. It's a six-episode series. And I liked it. But I think anytime you're taking a franchise that's that iconic and doing spinoffs, there's going to be people who just are purists and like the original franchise and don't think it should be touched. But then again, like everything's done for commercial purposes as well as creative purposes. So some people are saying it's just a cash grab, but I thought it was good. Yeah, I was a Walking Dead fan for the first like three, four seasons. And I think like a lot of fans, we kind of dropped off after certain things started happening on the show. 11 seasons. Yeah, man. Like I actually, the other day, I, I think I randomly was like so curious to know what's going on in the show. So I just did a YouTube recap. And I was like, wow, there's a lot happening here over the course of all these seasons. No interest in watching it. But I do like the idea of watching spinoffs because you can kind of start fresh again. I don't think Jessica was trying to be funny, but she thought that Negan was the dad in Little Mermaid live action. And I was like, <laughs> Triton. I was like, uh, no, not quite. Uh, well, I mean, well, spe speaking of the Little Mermaid, I mean, Disney and like what's going on right now with movie releases in terms of everything getting delayed again. Yeah, this is actually a major development. I don't know if there's a lot of press about it, but it's hard to say what exactly the cause was, whether it's the WGA strike, which we've talked about, which is ongoing, or Disney cost-cutting more broadly. But they just announced they're delaying all of their major <laughs> movies. In some yeah. cases, Avatar 5 is not coming out until 2031. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. Keep in mind that Avatar 1 came out in 2009. Yeah, so it's going to be four decades, spanning four decades. <laughs> Avatar 3 was supposed to come out this December. It's coming out December 2025. Avatar 4, December 2029. Avatar Dude. 5, December 2031, which is like- That's insane. The cast is going to be in their like mid-50s by the time this thing comes out. Star Wars got pushed a year to May 2026. Avengers Kang Dynasty also got pushed a year. They have pushed, made an announcement yeah. about Jonathan Majors, but I think it's status quo for now. Secret Wars is probably going to get pushed a year as well. Cap 4 is getting 
pushed just two months though, from May to July mm. 2024. And actually, interestingly, Deadpool is being pushed up. So pushed it was going to be November yeah. 2024. It's coming out. Uh, it's going to take Captain America's weekend, May 2024. And I'm trying to think back just to the magnitude of this. When I was at Marvel, I was there for almost six years. I don't think we ever moved a release date. In fact, I'm pretty sure even when we had to redo it with a different director, like on the basically the eve of production, it was because like the release date was considered like immovable. So mm. the fact that all of these things happen, it's pretty significant. And the thing with Disney is they have such a command of the box office, like this is going to have domino effects across every other studio because, you know, if you had something slated, now you're going head to head with the Disney movie if it's the same weekend and nobody wants to do that because everyone's going to be watching the Disney movie. Do you know how it works in terms of like when you're selecting a weekend to release a movie and you probably have to know what other movies are being released because you don't want to compete with them? Do you know that stuff? Like, or do they make guesses or they try to announce it before so that the other studio is like, oh, well, we can't do it because, you know, they're releasing a Marvel movie this weekend. So it's a little column A, a little column B. So all the studio executives are informally or formally in communication about stuff like that. I mean, you don't necessarily want to go head to head with another tentpole when you're releasing. Yeah. Everyone kind of knows at this point that the first weekend of May kicks off Summer Box or Memorial Day weekend. And yep. so typically there's like a Marvel tentpole there, but all the weekends in May, all the weekends in June and throughout the summer are like pretty important. Yep. No one wants to be on the same weekend or even on the second weekend of like an Avengers movie because the box right, office right. is just like the ge the gravity of that. It's like no one, all the theaters are going to be packed with Marvel fans. So you're just not going to want to, A, you're not going to want to go up against them because you're going to come in so low on like the weekend rankings and B, right, there's right. just not enough demand, right? So basically part of it is announcing early enough that you can stake your claim to a particular weekend and also avoiding weekends that are historically going to the major studios for their tentpole films. And if you look at it historically, there are patterns that emerge and it goes years out. And so part of it is as a studio, you want to take weekends that are historically like three-day weekends or potentially four-day weekends when there's going to be a lot of people going to theaters. There's certain things that aren't in your control, but like that's a big factor. Another thing is if you have a franchise and it released May whatever, 4th, 2023, and you're doing a sequel, you'd like it to be on the anniversary or two years after the opening weekend of the first movie. So there's a little bit of that. And they're projecting too, but studios will hold like tentative dates years out and then try to work towards them. The other thing is like you tell your team, your production and your creative teams, like this is the day we need to aim for. And then barring something really unforeseen and, and significant, we're going to hit it right at all costs. So the fact that Disney's rejiggered all these dates is, is really uh, exceptional to me. Yeah, I was reading something about Oppenheimer and then the new Mission Impossible movie are like on the same weekend, I think. And like Tom Cruise was having an issue with IMAX theaters not showing enough of Mission Impossible versus like Oppenheimer. And that's very specific to the type of theater. Like obviously like Christopher Nolan shoots in IMAX. But right. it is it is interesting to see like them now kind of speaking out like the theaters not selecting their movie in certain types of theaters, right? IMAX is obviously very special for like certain types of movie. Like I would love to watch Mission Impossible in IMAX, but I would also want to watch Oppenheimer in IMAX. Yeah, and it's just it's uncommon for someone or a family to see like two movies in theaters in a weekend, and that's why right. 
This right. is it's different than sort of any other medium you can think of in terms of like television, right? Because if you you're not necessarily worried about someone only streaming your show versus someone else, but in linear, um, yeah, you know, no one wants to go up against the Super Bowl. It's kind of like that. Well, and it, it reminds me there's an Entourage episode where Aquaman's coming out and they're competing with like some squirrel animated movie and they're really nervous because obviously when you're competing against a family movie, like which one is going to win? Obviously, there's a lot of younger adults going to go see an Aquaman versus are you taking your family to go see the animated movie? And I have noticed that like when certain big weekends, there's like a big animated movie as well for like, or like family focused movie. And I think this is like, this goes back to like Mario, why Mario killed it. Family movie hadn't been a big family movie in a long time and they weren't really competing with much. Yeah. I mean, it's all about understanding and studio executives, a big part of this, in addition to the film being good and coming in on schedule and under budget, is like knowing when to release it, when there's going to be pent up demand, and when you're going to be able to get like a good, strong momentum through your press junket, when you're going to do the premiere. All of that stuff goes into the calculation. So, this is not a decision Disney would have made lightly. No, no. I mean, I'm bummed, you know, uh, less movies to see, but there's still some good ones this summer. And Keep everyone posted on, on what's going on there, but let's take a break and let's get back and we'll talk about BET and Tyler Perry. So Mesh, this is an interesting story or perhaps non-story. I mean, it is a story because there's a lot of rumors, but nothing has been confirmed. I want to just get ahead of that. So Paramount Global, Viacom, Paramount, the entity, They've owned BET Media, which operates BET, the channel, Black Entertainment Television, and VH1 since 2000, 2001. BET was actually founded by Robert Johnson in the mid-80s, and he sold it to Viacom for something like $2.5 billion or $2.3 billion in 2001. And it was really groundbreaking at the time. It was the first network that was dedicated to Black audiences and Robert Johnson had a feeling that like, you know, he had been involved in television and he felt like this was a demographic that was ignored by a lot of the major studios and networks and to a degree advertisers as well, because the population wasn't, you know, the majority. And so most people are trying to make content that applies to the majority. And so this was a segment that kind of got de-emphasized. So Black Entertainment Television comes around, Paramount buys it in 2000 because it's a really strong brand and they had a enormous like TV behemoth where they had a bunch of networks, MTV, Nickelodeon, and others. So they had, I think, probably a dozen or two dozen television networks at their peak. And so they buy BET for a bunch of money, like I said, two and a half billion dollars. And as it twists and turns and Paramount starts shifting into streaming and focusing on Paramount Plus, we've talked about in a couple episodes, their stock price has fallen and they're spending a lot of money on the Taylor Sheridan universe and on growing Paramount Plus. So rumors started coming up to the surface in March of 2023 that they were thinking of selling BET Media. And that sets the table for this. And when those rumors start to surface, then media moguls get interested. And this is exactly, this is a big part of what I do is television and media M&A. And Tyler Perry, along with others like Byron Allen and Diddy, and I also think Shaq, uh, we're all rumored to be interested. And 50 Cent. And 50 Cent, yeah. We're all rumored to be interested in acquiring BET once Paramount hinted that they were shopping it. And we're not sure who is actually going to be the winning 
bitter in this or if it will end up being sold. But there was an announcement in social media this past week that Tyler Perry had closed on his acquisition and that he would be the first African-American to own two major television networks because Diddy has Revolt, which is one network. Byron Allen has the Weather Channel and another and a couple other broadcast stations and one smaller network, but no one has two. And that's a big thing. Right. And Tyler Perry's a, a really good candidate, logical one, because he already has a minority stake in Production BET Media company. that he got in 2019. Oh, that's right. That's right. When they launched BET Plus, because he has an output deal. So he was supposed to make content for BET Plus. Right. He's supposed right. to gain viewership, generate revenue. And as part of that deal, they gave him equity in the company. From what I read, BET helped fund his first film, Diary of a Mad Black Woman, back in 2005. So they actually have like a really long relationship. They do, yeah. I mean, Tyler Perry, what a great success story. Yeah. Thinking back to last week's episode with Zarna, I mean, this is a guy who self-made following his own like inner drive and was creating content, writing, starting with stage plays and making his own stuff and being very careful about ownership and his brand and not necessarily just giving up control for financing. So, you know, he arguably maybe took a little bit longer for him to get his career off the ground, but he accelerated so quickly because he was, he owned his own stuff. And then after a couple successes, everyone came calling, right? From Oprah to Netflix, to Amazon, to BET, to Paramount. And he's, you know, he writes, he directs, he acts, he acts in films that he hasn't even written. He's made, I don't know, a dozen television shows and 20 movies. So it's just like a great content creator. So he has a piece of BET plus, like you said, full circle because they funded his first movie. Well, I guess it makes sense from like, if he got a good price for it and he's going to be producing movies anyways, it's almost like he gets his, like versus direct to streaming, he could sell his movies to a streaming platform. In this case, it's like, let me own the full stack here. I'll make the content, I'll produce it, and then I'll distribute it myself, like using BET and VH1 or however he's thinking about that. I'm I'm curious, like that's in my head is what I thought. Have you ever heard that saying, he's playing chess when everyone else is playing checkers? I mean, he's got this huge (laughs) compound in Atlanta, right? Like to make content. Studio, which is profitable in and of itself. And yeah, he can make the content now and license it to the platforms for a couple years while he retains ownership. He gets a royalty. Maybe they even pay him to make it on his sound stages. Then after a couple years, he controls it. It's like, let me, because streaming is obviously very, very intensive from a from a capital like expenditure, where if it works, like there's some built-in audience with like BET and VH1, he's producing the stuff. Maybe it's a potential like flip acquisition where like, okay, like another streaming service buys it because it's like, okay, this, this is working. I don't know. Well, the rumor is that he, he was going to, so he already had 25%, right, through his 2019 deal with Paramount. And the rumor is that he was going to get a controlling interest, right? So let's say that's a, as at least 26 more percent for 400 million. So this is something, if you think about Paramount Oof. paid 2.3 billion in 2000, and if they're yeah, selling, yeah, yeah. you know, 30 or four, we don't know for 400 million, you know, what's the value? It seems like he's getting a pretty good deal considering things have, you know, what's inflation been in the past 20 years. So it seems like if that's true, then it's a good deal for him. And 
you know, very wise. But like I said, nothing's been signed. Nothing. He hasn't made any comment. Paramount hasn't made any comment. There could be other bidders that are interested. And it could just be a story that was generated to revive the deal or to try to get someone else to come in and spend more. I mean, we don't know. It's right, not right, like right, right. Tyler right. Perry has the exclusive right to acquire the ownership. Right. Someone else could, even though he has 25%. I got to imagine it's like, he's just like with a lot of these big purchases, maybe it's like a, he, he's putting a consortium together and he's like just the lead on it. Um, and well, he's a billionaire, but it. sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, if you're, if I have a billion dollars, am I going to put like 20 to 40% of it buying a, a network? I'd probably maybe put like a hundred mil and be like, Hey, who wants to like jump in on this deal? That's what I would assume happens, but who knows? Maybe the guy's just like, yeah, let me buy this thing. Well, yeah. I mean, when you're Tyler Perry and this is all speculation, you know, I don't know anything about this specifically, yeah. but yeah, you know, Oprah may be in for 50. I was literally going to say that. Like, he goes to Oprah and be like, hey, do you want to just buy two networks? It's like, yeah, why not? Yeah, right. She's I mean, done it before. And he's a brand, right? He's a brand. He's bankable. He has an established formula that works. His content is very successful. And if someone wants to get into the content game, why not be an LP in whatever he's trying to do, right? Just give him control of BET. And it does make sense from Paramount's perspective if they're thinking, well, Long term, we're putting all our eggs in the Paramount Plus basket. We really don't want to invest in competing services like BET Plus and Noggin and Showtime. So they folded Showtime into Paramount Plus. And maybe if they can get some cash for BET Plus, they'll probably do a deal where they get to keep some BET content on their platform, but it's just they're not right. going to control it. And so right, right, for them, right. they get some cash and they don't have to invest in two things that are sort of competing. Because at some point, not everyone's going to have 50 streaming services, right? They're going to have like a handful or, you know, maybe half a dozen or, or more. It depends on, on the person. But most people aren't, aren't going to have BET Plus at 10 bucks a month plus Paramount. Yeah. And then I wonder if they bring back Freestyle Fridays on, on BET like we used to watch back in, in college or like, again, like even with VH1, it was like VH1 played more music. They had some funny shows on it. I do really, I would like the, the day where I can just put, open it up and it's just playing and there's just like music videos and commentary going on. I think, I don't know if that, that's, I don't know if that's very lucrative because there's probably a lot, lot of licensing when it comes to that, but I'm sure it'd be more well, like- Well, I think YouTube changed that game, right? Yeah, like, if YouTube did change music that music videos. Yeah. Yeah. But then you have to like select so it. I, don't know I, like, that... I almost like want someone to curate it for me. But that's just me. Sure. Yeah. Like a like someone to make a playlist. Man, those, it's so funny to think those were the days and now it's like, yeah, I can just go on YouTube and select whatever I want. I guess I could make a playlist on YouTube. It, it, I mean, and, and YouTube's done really well with the ability to like then know what else to play after that. But I, yeah, I, I do wonder if anyone will take a shot at that again that's outside of YouTube, like when it comes to music online. We'll see. Yeah, who knows? Well, let's take a break and come back with an update on all-in pricing for fans of concerts. So, Mesh, I want to say we covered this initially back at the end of last year, episode 42. The Swifties were outraged with... Ticketmaster and Live Nation because that's right. The Taylor Swift Eras Tour, the people were waiting online for like nine, ten hours to get tickets. And this is people who had the pre-sale access code that they registered a week in advance. In addition to waiting for like a day to be able to get the tickets, they said that the service fees were also exorbitant. And Ticketmaster at the time released a statement that said 
the amount of demand there was for this tour, I mean, Taylor Swift would have had to play sold out Dude. shows for three years to meet the demand that there was. So there's nothing that we could have done to make everybody happy, which I understand. Yeah. But at the same time, yeah. it did draw the ire of a lot of people, including the FTC and in the government. And this coincided with one of the things that Joe Biden has said his entire presidency, and he even mentioned it at the State of the Union, is that he wanted to get rid of these so-called hidden fees, like service charges yeah. and things Junk fees. that just end up right before you click through a transaction. So when you're looking, you're browsing online or you're looking at like yeah. an advertisement for a service, it'll say $29.99 a month. And then you like click and there's some fine print and then you put in your credit card information and you look at the thing and it's like $54. And how did that happen? Yeah. And then you yeah. look in the detail and it's like, well, there's this fee and there's that fee and then we have to get it to you. And, oh, you're going to print these tickets at home. That's $3.50. So... <laughs> There's these these things, superfluous, hidden charges that you don't see when you're making your decision to buy or not buy something. And the FTC and President Biden has said these things are anti-competitive. It really harms the consumer. It's really hard to compete or to comparison shop. You don't see these fees until you're about to buy it. And the president has said, I want transparent all-in pricing. The price you see is what Great. you pay and get rid of all this extraneous stuff because it really just harms consumers. And I think it's not limited to concerts. There's a lot of industries thinking just in my own personal experience, like your cable bill, your wireless bill. Airline tickets, airline um, tickets, hospitality, hotels, Airbnb. It, 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 it is really interesting because, you know, the plan is to, if you eliminate these fees or create more transparency, I believe when I was reading about it that they want to save up to five billion in annual savings for the customer. And we did see this last, I think it was like last December. I actually opened up the tweet right here. It was actually November of 2022. A little before that, people on Twitter were complaining about Airbnb because like when you go on Airbnb, it says, you know, Airbnb, $140 a night. And then when you click through the end, it's like the 140 a night is now like something insane, like cleaning fees. And, and here's the thing, it's like cleaning fees is already expensive and they still want you to clean the place before you leave. And uh, Brian Chesky at Airbnb saw this on Twitter. I, I think he saw it, I, th I think he was pretty, he knew that it was complaints coming in, but on Twitter it went viral. And so then in November, 2022, he, he wrote a tweet that said, I, I've heard you loud and clear. You feel like prices aren't transparent and checkout tasks are a pain. That's why we're making like four key changes. Next month, you'll see the total price you're paying up front, which is, it's kind of crazy that that's a feature. But he did kind of start that movement. And, and I think people were pretty happy about it. I think there's still stuff in there where people are still like, well, there's still a little bit of lack of transparency, but at least that was a push forward in this direction. And I, I'm all for that transparency thing. Nothing is worse than when you see something that's gonna cost you like $9.99 or like plane tickets, like 600 and something, and the next thing you know, you're paying $1,300. I agree with you 100%. It's very frustrating. And the reason we're talking about it now is because this past week, Biden had a meeting at the White House or uh, he, held, he held a meeting and he had executives from Live Nation, SeatGeek, Airbnb, Dice, which is a, you know, ticketing app for EDM shows and concerts, TickPick, and a handful of others. And they all committed to yeah. embrace this concept of transparent all-in pricing. Live Nation said that by September of this year, they're going to roll out 
an all-in price on all events at Ticketmaster's owned and operated venues. So that's like, I don't know, 200 venues. And DICE says they're already doing it. They sell tickets to 40,000 events a year, including Brooklyn Mirage. Airbnb, as you said, this is an option. So when it's before you confirm your booking, you can say, hey, do you want to see what the total price is? Yeah. I think it's helpful. I, I agree with you. If there's a system to get discounts and it's kind of confusing, then you feel like you've earned it. It's like, oh, if you do this and this and this, then you get X percent off. Like, okay, I might do that. But when there's a, the opposite, which is like just adding to the price after you feel like you've agreed to the transaction, that's what frustrates people. It's a simpler transaction. And what some of these companies have noticed, is especially one after it implemented transparent pricing, they said sales went up 15% because consumers were just like, relieved that they knew what they were getting and there weren't any surprises. Well, I wonder what also happens is that, okay, well, if we're creating transparency, there's some things about getting rid of some of these junk fees, businesses are going to probably bake them into like the base price. Who knows? Like things might go up slightly to like cover that loss in case. That would be my guess. Is, is what's going to happen? Well, sure. I think the idea is as long as it's transparent, right? Like right. if before you in your mind make a decision <laughs> to buy something or attend something, the price that you see when you're deciding is the price that you end up paying, even if it has all those other charges factored in before it's shown to you. I don't think the issue is necessarily like, let's say it all ends up, it all adds up to 40 bucks. And they they show the price is nineteen ninety nine, and then it's like when you buy it, it's forty. That's what bothers people. If it said it was forty from the beginning, people could say, okay, well, that's what I expected when I made the decision. Yeah, it'll be hilarious if like it's so transparent. They're like, hey, we've just increased the pr- uh, pricing by twenty percent because we can't charge you other fees, but we're just being transparent about increasing the price here. So you, you you're paying basically the main. Well, that, and yeah, at that, at that point, people still have the ability to shop around, right? Like, yeah, if it's yeah, all yeah, transparent, yeah, yeah. then you can say, okay, well, let me check out how much this is somewhere else. It's all right. transparent in theory. That benefits consumers. But I could understand from the business perspective. Not you know naming any names, but if they're like, hey, well, if we just add this $2 charge to everyone, is it really going to make them not buy it? And then how much <laughs> yeah, yeah, revenue yeah, is yeah. that? It's like, okay, well, let's do that. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, look, uh, here's the thing. If there's no regulation or law against it until there is, I mean, you can't blame them for doing it. Right, and, there, I've, and so there are the FTC, and that's the other thing. So I don't know that they're actually... I think the White House pressured and said that they felt this was an important objective. And the FTC said it was considering making a rule. And I think there were some bills being bandied about in Congress, but nothing actually got passed and the FTC didn't actually issue any rules. So this is really more businesses responding preemptively because they think it'll make consumers happy, yeah. which is how it's supposed to work, right? If you can sell more products because consumers trust you, then, then that's even better. And I know sometimes like you'll go to a restaurant and they'll add a fee that's like, you know, not the tip, but it's like 18%, but it's not the tip. And then it's like, do you want to pay an additional tip? Yeah, it's so confusing, man. Sometimes it is really confusing. Well, that's where I I get confused on like DoorDash because I'm like, is this delivery fee? Is that the tip? Is that the, does the, I don't think it is. Right. And, but I'm always like, and then you want me to add the tip on top of that. So you're trying to get like Shake Shack. And I could just walk there and get it. And instead, I'm paying like $30 on top 
because I'm lazy. And that actually sometimes, sometimes, you know how many times I've opened up DoorDash, ordered a bunch of stuff, and then when I saw the price, I just like closed out the window and then went to another, went to another restaurant and then did it again and then eventually just got up and like either cooked something or walked outside. Well, that's, I mean, living where there's 10 options right outside your door, I mean, that's on you at that point. But I guess if it's <laughs> yeah. raining. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's true. Or a big night out of uh, Brooklyn Mirage, you know? I think it's all a good thing, and I'm ex you know curious to see what happens with that, and it, it's a good push forward for consumers. Like, everybody wants transparency, but yeah, we'll see what happens. Cool, yeah, I'm in favor of it. I'll go to more concerts. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll keep people posted on how that goes, and good for, for us consumers, hopefully. That's our show this week, Paul. Um, thanks again for all the breakdowns. Guys, make sure you follow us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Share it with your friends. Follow us at Better Call Paul the Podcast, Instagram, TikTok. Follow me on Twitter at Mesh Lakani. Write us a review too, honestly, if you, if you Write like a the review. Show. Tell us how you like the show. You can always reach out to us. Tell us what you like. And, you know, we're always excited to hear from you. Hit us up on Instagram. Follow us on TikTok at Better Call Paul the Podcast. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week. Thanks. <laughs>